Welcome back to the Joseph Carlson Show. We have a lot to get into in this episode. Jerome Powell just said the words. He just addressed the elephant in the room that higher interest rates could possibly, maybe, lead to a recession. And him just admitting that obvious fact caused the market to drop back into the red from being a percentage into the green. That's how fragile this market is. Now, we also have another topic I want to address, which is something that's being debated right now across social media, across YouTube and other outlets. Naturally, as there's the possibility that we might be going into recession, and at this point, at least in the financial realm, it seems like a consensus that we are headed into a recession, the question gets asked, when should we buy our companies? Should we hold off and hoard cash right now? Should we buy in later? Should we lump sum invest right now? Or should we dollar cost average? The question being debated right now is simply whether we should time the market or not time the market. Market timing is pretty simple. It just means that you're trying to predict market movements. If investors can predict when the market will go up or down, they can make trades that turn that market move into a profit. And many people are trying to participate in this behavior. They're moving money into cash, waiting for the market to go lower, and hopefully they can buy in at a low point and turn the following upward move into a profit. So that leaves us also with the question, does market timing really work? Is this something we should try to participate in? And luckily, there's a lot of data on this subject, a lot of studies that we can look at. So in this episode, we're also going to be addressing the question, does market timing work? And then finally, we have a question I want to address in this episode from a commenter that says, for Vici, what happens when their tenants go bankrupt? I think this is a good question. It's a fair question to ask. I'm investing in a real estate company called Vici, and it does look like we might be heading into a recession. What happens if one of their tenants goes bankrupt? I'll be answering that question in this episode. So we have a lot to jump into. Let's go ahead and get started with a portfolio update. This is the passive income portfolio. It is my own dividend growth portfolio that I show week by week with complete transparency. Now, right now, it's basically flat which is a little depressing, right? We're investing to make gains, to make money, and this portfolio is flat after investing for a couple of years. And to some people, that can be depressing. To me, I look at it in a different perspective. First of all, the reason this portfolio has gone down 21% year to date, which means at the beginning of the year, I was in the green by around $80,000. Now we're just basically neutral, in the green by $3,000. But the big thing that's caused this portfolio to go down is simply capital gains going away, capital appreciation, which is people pricing companies by either bidding them up or selling them off. That is what makes the difference in capital appreciation. If I look at what my companies are actually doing, they're still continuing to operate as normal. They're highly profitable. Each and every one of them is growing their net income and free cash flow. The earned dividends has only increased over the time period that I've been investing. And As you can see, my market gain is actually in the red by $12,000. The earned dividends is in the green by $14,500. So the earned dividends right now, the actual cash flow I'm getting paid is what's actually keeping me in the green as of right now. And I think that this is important to highlight. A lot of people scoff at the idea of dividend investing. They say, why focus on dividend income when you can focus on making money quickly with capital appreciation? Well, I think this is a good example. Irregardless of what direction the market goes because of investor sentiment, investors change their attitudes every day. They go from being bullish to bearish, bidding companies up to unrealistic prices, selling them off in ultimate bearishness to the point where they're very undervalued. Investors change their minds all the time. But the nice thing about dividends is they're not under the emotional control of investors. 
dividends are under the control of the actual company. So that's where these two different line items differentiate each other. Market gains are under control of emotional investors. You're looking to make gains by other investors buying assets after you do and bidding them up in price. That's where the market gains come from. Earned dividends comes from the actual cash flows of the company. There's no emotional aspect to this. The management team looks at their balance sheet, their income statement, and then they return cash flow to you, the shareholder, with no really emotional decision. And that's why the earned dividends, this item is so much more consistent, so much more reliable than the market gains. Dividends are also more reliable, more dependable than share buybacks. Companies change their policy and their allocation to share buybacks very frequently. This has changed radically. You can see through the history of the S&P 500 that the share buybacks is also not really dependable can go up to extremes during market enthusiasm, then it can go to depressed levels when the market goes down. Dividends are the most reliable, least emotional form of income that you can gain from the stock market. It is like getting rental income. It is true that it can go up sometimes and then dip a little bit during a horrible recession, but even during the Great Recession, the worst one that we've ever had in our history, the amount of dividends paid went from $250 billion to 200 That was a slight decrease. That wasn't really a lot of volatility, at least with the rest of the market. And then the amount of dividend income steadily recovered over time. Even during the 2020 pandemic, when companies were entirely closed, many of them did not cancel their dividend policy. It only went down just a hair and it quickly recovered. So look, I get that the past six months have been terrible. I've been in this market too. I've seen the gains go down over time. Most of us are in the same situation. And I think it's important to not get emotional, to not make rash decisions, to focus on the fundamentals and valuations of our companies. Most of the companies, if not all of them, likely in my portfolio and in your portfolio, are in much better shape than what investors are giving them credit for. Right now, I've looked over every single balance sheet, every single income statement, the operating income of these companies, and even though investors are selling out of them, most of them are in fantastic shape. So don't become too concerned. Don't make any rash decisions. Let the market do its thing and focus on the actual assets that you own. Now, having said all of that, many people look at this type of economic news of Jerome Powell at Capitol Hill raising interest rates, of inflation out of control, of lots of chaos and logistics imbalances in supply and demand, and lots of problems the economy is facing. And this is something that's debated all across YouTube. There are a lot of people firmly in the camp that you should try to time the market. And I want to explain why I don't do that. And I want to explain it not just with my opinion, but with academically backed up research. This is a research paper from Schwab, and they back-tested the whole concept of market timing versus dollar cost averaging versus lump sum investing. The way that they did this study was they made up five different hypothetical long-term investors following different investment strategies. Each received $2,000 at the beginning of every year. So there's five different investors, they all have different investment strategies, and each of them hypothetically received $2,000 at the beginning of each year. Now, that can be similar to our salary. We get money every year, and what do we do with that money? They did this for 20 years, ending in 2020, and they looked at the outcome of these different investing strategies. So let's go through these hypothetical characters and look at their investment strategy and see how it turned out for them. Number one, we have the perfect market timer. It doesn't get better than this. He had the incredible skill or luck of being able to always place the $2,000 into the market every year at the exact lowest closing point of the year. So out of all the trading days, he always bought at the exact bottom. For example, 
Peter had $2,000 to invest at the start of 2001. Rather than putting it in immediately, he invested in September 21st, 2001. That's the year's lowest closing level for the S&P 500. At the beginning of 2002, Peter received another $2,000. He waited and invested the money in October 9th, 2002, the lowest closing level for the market for the year. He continued to do this until the year 2020. Ashley Action is number two. She took a simple, consistent approach. Each year, once she received her cash, she invested her $2,000 into the market at the first trading day of the year. So Ashley doesn't have to use any judgment beyond her initial decision to immediately put her money, the full amount, into the market right when she gets it. There's no dollar cost averaging. There's no thinking about the lowest or highest price. She literally just put the money into the market right as she got it. Then we have Matthew Monthly. Matthew Monthly divided his annual $2,000 allotment into 12 equal portions, which he invested at the beginning of every month. This strategy is known as dollar cost averaging. This is what I do. It's called dollar cost averaging. So I'm right there in line with Matthew Monthly. But then we have a couple other hypothetical characters here. Rosie Rotten had incredibly poor timing or perhaps terribly bad luck. She invested her $2,000 each year at the market's peak. For example, Rosie invested her first $2,000 in January 30th, 2001. That's the year's highest closing level for the S&P 500. And she also invested at the highest peak every single year for the 20 years. And then the fifth hypothetical character we have is Larry Linger. Larry left his money in cash investments using treasury bills as a proxy every year and never got around to investing in stocks at all. He was always convinced that lower stock prices were ahead and therefore better opportunities to invest his money were just around the corner. So Larry Linger was the one that waited around for the best time to invest but never got those opportunities. Now let's go ahead and look at the results of this study. And one thing I want to highlight is even though the time period we're looking at is from 2001 to 2020, they also conducted the same study across 76 different separate 20-year time periods, and the results were very similar. They're almost the same across all those time periods. Naturally, the best result, the best outcome does land with Perfect Peter. He timed the market perfectly, and he ended up with the most amount of money. But the study's most stunning findings concerns Ashley, who came in second place with 135,000, only 15,900 less than Perfect Peter. This relatively small difference is especially surprising considering that Ashley had to simply put her money to work as soon as she received it every year without any pretense of market timing. So even though Ashley Action had no judgment, She didn't have to time the market. She didn't have to look at the ups and downs. She just deployed money as soon as she got it. She had very similar results to the literal perfect hypothetical market timer. And then right after that, Matthew with the dollar cost averaging strategy, which is the strategy that I employ, almost performed nearly as well. He was just slightly behind Ashley Action, earning him third place with 134,000 at the end of 20 years. And then after that, we have bad timing, which worked out to have lowered returns. And then the worst returns by far was even worse than poor market timing, which is staying in cash. That is the worst decision you can do over any 20-year period. Now, having said that, I do have to point out that Perfect Peter did have superior results. The Perfect Market Timer did at the end of the day have more money than any other category. And these results can be replicated during any time period of investing. If you have perfect market timing, you do at the end of the day have more money. So that raises the question, why don't we try to time the market to some extent if we can have more money at the end of the day? 
And this is where another study comes into play. This one's called The Perils of Trying to Time Volatile Markets from Wells Fargo. In this, they go over a lot of data, and I'll try to summarize it here. But they first set the stage by showing the individual performance of your average investor. On average, individual investors earn 6.24% annualized, while the S&P 500 earns 10.7%. They attribute the inferior performance of individual investors to emotional decisions. Selling when markets go down, buying when markets go up, making decisions based off of emotions. Where the counterpoint, the S&P 500 index, doesn't buy and sell based off of emotion, it simply holds companies in a market cap weighted index and holds them regardless of what's going on in the market. This leads to superior performance over time because of low turnover and a consistent, methodical approach to investing. Now, the next piece of data in the study they share is more relevant to market timing. The goal of market timing, if you really boil it down, is to try to miss out on bad days in the market. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to avoid investing or being invested during bad days in the market. And what you're trying to do is buy after those bad days, after the market's already gone down, so that you can then be invested fully when the market starts to recover. That is the goal of market timing. What most market timers don't think about is how critical it is to also be invested during the good days in the market. If you inadvertently miss out on some of the best days in the market while trying to miss out on some of the worst, your performance will be crushed. The S&P 500 over a 30-year period returned 8.5%, and if you just took away the 10 best days, the performance went from 8.5 annualized to 5.7. That's a dramatic decrease in performance just by missing 10 days. And if you missed 50 days, your performance goes into the red. 50 days out of 30 years, and your performance goes into the red. So while you're thinking about missing out on the bad days in the market, you also have to consider potentially missing out on the good days in the market. Now, if your thought process is, well, hey, Joseph, maybe I can miss out on the bad days in the market while also staying invested during the good days in the market. So basically what I'll do is I'll stay invested during bull runs when we have the good days in the market, during the bull runs, and then I'll get out of the market when we go into a recession. There's a huge problem with that thought process. First of all, the bad days and the good days in the market often occur very close together, making it incredibly difficult to pick and choose which days you wanna stay invested. If you're investing during the good days, you're probably also gonna be investing during the bad days. Another problem is when these days occur is often counterintuitive. For example, the best days in the market occur during a bear market. That's right. The best days in the stock market occur during a bear market, and some of the worst days in the market occur during a bull market. So if your thought process is, I'll be invested during bull markets to get those best days in the market, and then I'll sell out of the market during bear markets to avoid the worst days, that is the exact opposite of when those days happen. So while it might be fun to think about avoiding all the bad days in the market and staying invested during the good days, it is theoretically and realistically impossible. And Wells Fargo says as much. In our view, these findings argue strongly for most investors to remain invested in the equity markets, even in the most volatile markets. That's Wells Fargo's way of saying that trying to time these type of days is impossible. Now you might be saying, all right, maybe I can't time the market perfectly and avoid all the worst days while being invested during the best days. That seems very unlikely. In fact, I think it's realistically impossible. But the next best thing is to avoid all the best days and the worst days. 
If theoretically you could avoid all the volatility altogether, your overall performance would be superior. And they also address this possibility. So what if you try to take a strategy of just staying out of the market during times of volatility like we're in right now? If we look at a chart here, they did look at this as well. And you would theoretically have better performance if you were able to miss all the volatility in the market and just be invested during non-volatile times. But notice the performance difference here. It's very minimal. 8.5% compared to 9.5. There is a 1% differential between missing all the volatility in the market and just staying fully invested. And that is if you could hypothetically miss all the best days and the worst days, which again is incredibly unlikely. And they even mentioned that although it does improve performance by 1% by being out of the market during all this volatile time, it doesn't even make a big enough difference to account for likely tax costs and transaction costs because you're going to have to do a lot of buying and selling in order to miss the most volatile days. So this is yet another study confirming something that we should already know. Timing the market realistically is impossible and nobody can do it on a consistent basis. The people advocating to time the market based off of economic predictions or macro events are even more foolish. History shows that that is not a good way to invest and is more than likely to lead to lower performance. The market works in counterintuitive ways. The best days in the market are during bear markets. The worst days in the market are during bull markets. And you can't separate the two. Trying to only be invested during the good times simply will not work. And even if you were somehow to magically avoid all volatility in the market, which is basically theoretically impossible, your outperformance is negligible when you factor in taxes and transaction costs. This is why Wells Fargo says that even as risks remain in the market, we suggest focusing on quality at the asset level focusing on your actual businesses. This is the correct advice. Schwab says that even if you're tempted to try to wait for the best time to invest in the stock market, our study suggests the benefits of doing so aren't impressive, even for perfect timers. So that's the reason that I personally don't try to time the market. I invest based off of a systematic incremental dollar cost averaging. And I'll show you exactly how I have mine set up. This is completely systematic dollar cost averaging. I use M1 Finance's rules where you can set schedules, scheduled deposits. And you can see four different schedules here, each of them for monthly and each of them for $1,000. These are four separate schedules that put $1,000 into the passive income account every single week of every month. So $4,000 a month in total, $1,000 per week. I can go into this one, for example. It says the frequency is monthly, week of the month is the first, and then the day of the week is Monday. So every first Monday of the month, I have $1,000 into my passive income account. I can look at the next one here. The same exact thing, except the second week of the month. Monday, week two, another $1,000. Then the third one here, the same exact thing, except the third week of the month. And then the fourth one, obviously the same thing, but the fourth week of the month. This is systematic incremental investing, which is called dollar cost averaging. And this is proven to be an excellent way to get exposure into the market on a monthly basis as you earn your salary. This is something that I recommend everybody set up. Try to set up automatic deposits to enforce some level of discipline. Now, $4,000 a month may be too much for some people, and it may not be enough for some people. So you can adjust these numbers to whatever you want. You can say, I want to put $100 a week into the stock market. 400 bucks a month, but this is the approach that I've taken. And then at the beginning of the week, I look at the dip finder. This is a tool I developed that's available to all Patreon members to see where all my companies are trading. Right now, most of my companies are in a downtrend. They're 
going down with the rest of the market to varying extents. Vici is the only one that has bullishness in it. This is the only company that's actually doing really well in my portfolio. All of the other ones are going down, some less than the general S&P 500 and some more. When I look at this, it gives me an idea of which companies are the biggest discount in my portfolio. For example, if I liked Disney at 150, if I was buying the company at 150 and it's traded down to a huge extent, I may want to take a second look at it. If I like the valuation then, I probably like it more now. The same thing for Target or T. Rowe Price or Starbucks. These are great companies that I was buying at a higher price. Now they've came down in price and it becomes even more attractive. So I look at the valuation of them. I look at the different companies and I try to deploy that $1,000 into where I think it's going to go the furthest. And that is overall my investment policy. It's pretty simple. Now, moving on, I have to address one of the comments I received on my most recent video. It was asking if Vici has one of their tenants go bankrupt, what happens? Now, before we jump into that question, I have to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor. It's FTX US. I'm sure you've heard about this company. They're one of the largest US regulated crypto exchanges. They're also sponsoring a lot of celebrities and personalities like Tom Brady, Kevin O'Leary, Steph Curry, and even the Miami Heat Arena is called the FTX Arena now. And they're also well backed. Even though there's a lot of chaos happening with cryptocurrencies right now, FTX is one of the most stable companies. They recently just raised $400 million at a $32 billion valuation. Now, my viewers know that I'm not big into cryptocurrency. It's not my thing. I don't do really any research on them or cover them because I like buying these dividend paying cash flow producing assets. But FTX is a platform that's moving into a lot of other categories. One of them is stocks, and this caught my interest. They are building out a stock platform that offers free trades. You can buy and sell anytime the market's open. There's no payment for order flow, and it's incredibly simple to use. So this is what I've been using. I've been testing it out. It's currently in beta. They have thousands of users testing it right now. And the stock portion of this platform is going to be open to the public in the coming week. So sign up now. There's a link in the description of this video. It literally takes two minutes to sign up. It's completely free. And if you put in the code Carlson, the refer code Carlson, my last name, you'll get $10 credited to you after depositing $100. And once you sign up, let me know what you think of the platform. So far, I've only had good feedback. All right, now I wanna switch gears here and respond to one of the comments I got on the previous episode. So this is a comment section response from last episode. And this is from JN. They say, for Vici, what happens when their tenants go bankrupt? And it has six thumbs up. Now, I think the question's a little bit presumptuous. What happens when their tenants go bankrupt? Not if. I'm certainly not investing in Vici under the pretense that all of their tenants are going to go bankrupt. If I thought that was going to happen, I wouldn't be owning the company. But regardless, I'll entertain the question. What would happen if some of Vici's tenants end up going bankrupt let's say because of a horrible recession, like the one that we're apparently going into. First of all, I do think this is a valid concern. Vici is one of my bigger holdings. I'm bullish on the company long-term, but I'm not under the impression that it's impossible for their tenants to go bankrupt. I think it is a possibility. And if that happened, it would be a major risk factor and a problem for Vici. So that is something to keep in mind. This is a real concern. If you're investing in Vici, the quality of the tenants and their ability to pay rent is vital to your operation. After all, Vici's income does come from their rent. And if they don't get that rent from their tenants, they're not able to support their debt payments for owning the properties. So this is a major risk factor. And I think the biggest risk factor to owning this company. When we look at the diversification of renters in Vici, 
it's actually a less diversified REIT than most REITs. Most of them, like Store Capital or Realty Income Corp, have hundreds, if not thousands of different companies renting from them, and they're highly diversified. Vici's far more concentrated, with only eight tenants making up 100% of their rents. These eight tenants, though, are very unique companies, most of them very large, most of them S&P 500 companies that are publicly traded. And then if we look at the concentration, they are further concentrated into two companies, Caesars and MGM. Caesars makes up 42% of their income, MGM makes up 36%. So the majority of their rents are coming from these two companies. Now, the biggest one that I think is a potential issue of actually going bankrupt is Caesars. When I look at MGM potentially going bankrupt, I really don't see it. They have a consistent amount of revenue. They've been posting positive EBITDA for years now. They do have some debt, but they also have cash and their debt position's well covered. So I think it would be very unlikely for MGM to not be able to pay rent. Caesars is more likely to go bankrupt than MGM. And that's a result of their large amounts of debt. They have $26 billion in debt, only a couple hundred million dollars in cash, and they don't post as strong of profits or operating income as MGM. So those things add together to make Caesars a little bit more risky of a tenant than MGM. What I will say is that Caesars, even just this year, is working aggressively to unleverage their company. They're trying to pay down debts. They just said in their last earnings report, quote, our properties are performing above expectations and we anticipate significant debt reduction in 2022 through a combination of strong operating cash flows and expected asset sale proceeds. So Caesars is doing two things to reduce their debt levels. First of all, they're selling off assets to pay down debt, and they're earning more money to pay down debt. And they're not doing any more acquisitions. They're putting those on hold until they get their debt to a more manageable level. So this company is taking aggressive steps right now to unleverage themselves and make themselves less likely to go bankrupt. But let's just say that management's efforts at Caesars doesn't work. And despite their best efforts, because of a huge recession, Caesars Entertainment Group ends up going bankrupt. That would be a problem for Vici because that's their biggest tenant, 42% of their rents. And bankruptcy means that they're having financial difficulty. But bankruptcy doesn't always mean that they can't pay rent. Usually when companies go bankrupt, it simply means that they have too much debt, they can't meet all of their obligations, so they're looking for a buyer or to restructure their debt. Your tenant files for bankruptcy. Should you give up hope on collecting any rent? No, tenants are not allowed to occupy lease space without paying rent during bankruptcy proceedings. So even if Caesar's Palace declared bankruptcy, that doesn't immediately absolve them from being forced to pay rent. They're still obligated fully to pay rent. They do say that bankruptcy filing timings do determine how much restitution landlords can expect. But the truth of the matter is, if the tenant is still occupying the space and operating their business, they still owe the landlord the rent. That is the relationship there, and it doesn't change just because of bankruptcy. If a tenant does not assume its lease and pay all past defaults as part of the bankruptcy process, the landlord has one or more claim against the bankruptcy estate. That means that if they don't pay rent, the landlord kind of turns into a a lender where they actually have claims over the assets of the company. The most common claim is administrative priority claim for unpaid post-petition rent including other periodic charges 
from the bankruptcy filing date until the lease expires or is rejected. So to answer your question, in the case, I think in the rare case that any of these tenants do in fact go bankrupt, that doesn't mean that they stop paying rent. They're still fully obligated to continue paying rent as long as they're in the premise and as long as their lease and contract is still in place. And if they're not able to financially pay rent, then Vici has claims on their assets to get restitution for the rent owed. So that does protect Vici to a large extent. So as a Vici shareholder, it's important to understand that you don't own the balance sheet of Caesars Palace or MGM. You're not invested in that. You don't own their debt. That is something those companies have to deal with. What you do have is a contract for them to pay you their rents. And it is mission critical for them. They operate their entire companies and entire businesses out of your location. They cannot relocate to a next door neighbor and avoid paying you rents. There is nowhere else for Caesars Palace or MGM or the Venetian to relocate. There's no other buildings. So it's completely different than normal commercial office space where you can move from one space to another. With Vici, these tenants have to pay rent if they want to stay in their location and they have nowhere else to go. So I hope that brings some clarity to that question. I might answer more in the future. That's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed and I'll see you in the next one.